It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. It's true. It's what I'm all about. Welcome to the program. Hope you're doing well. It is the first day of the North Carolina Legislative General Assembly session. Aren't you excited? Lots going on. Okay. Uh, well, thanks for listening anyway, even if you uh, you know can't uh, find the time to tear yourself away from the now video stream of the General Assembly. Aren't you excited? Okay. So no. All right. Um, you can uh, get all of the links, by the way, to all of the podcasts. Uh, the platforms and the Patreon and the Facebook group and everything at thepetecalendarshow.com, where we do solve all of the world's problems and uh, try to have fun doing it. Uh, the show is made possible by patrons and advertisers. So patrons include uh, like Daryl and Marlon, Lisa and Alan and let's see here, Gary and Ron and Tavis, I appreciate all your support. I really do. The show would not be possible without you guys. And also Mattress Man. show would not be possible without uh, great sponsors like Mattress Man, locally owned and operated. Four stores in the Asheville area, Asheville, Arden, Hendersonville. They do ship nationwide. So if you are listening uh, to the show out of, uh, you know, Duluth, uh, hey, you know, they actually did. Uh, I was talking to Chuck a couple of weeks ago. He said they actually did send uh, they did a delivery uh, or a sale out to like Iowa or Idaho or something. So if you're listening uh, across the fruited plain on the podcast platform of your choice, I appreciate it. And Chuck appreciates you purchasing a mattress from him. Uh, he wanted to be an advertiser on this show because he wanted to uh, bring the mattresses to you, to this audience. So uh, if you're thinking about buying a mattress or you were thinking about doing it this year, please think about doing it. They need uh, all of the support, obviously, that they can get. It's a small business. They're just as affected as everybody else throughout all of this. They've been, uh, moved all of their uh, uh, all their operations onto their website you know so everything that they have in inventory you can get via the website now mattressmanstores.com uh also if you're local you get the free local white glove delivery service uh everybody gets the 120 day comfort guarantee that means you're going to love the mattress that you get okay and if you don't they're going to exchange it for you for free so uh, 120 day comfort guarantee sleeping on the right mattress is going to help you uh, wake up and not feel as quarantined as you may otherwise be feeling on a bad mattress okay uh, so also use the discount code restwell all one word restwell for an additional 20 percent savings off site-wide mattressmanstores.com five-star delivery service, the 120-day comfort guarantee. Just experience the difference at Mattress Man and support the people that support the shows that you like. Um, buy local, sleep better, Mattress Man. So what else have we got? Oh, some good news. I want to start the show off with some... This is some. Th these are some positive developments, I would say. So first, um, a local effort to help people out of work and out of business has released some new numbers. This is the One Bunkum fund and wlos reports which is basically off of their press release from one bunkum uh, which uh, raised more than one million dollars in donations fantastic job and uh to date the fund has helped retain about 340 jobs i think it's 339 they processed 38 loans and they've provided assistance to more than 660 people assistance like rent mortgage payments, groceries, and other basic expenses. So that's uh, that's 
Very good news for the One Bunkum Fund. Also, this was announced uh, yesterday or day before from State Senator Chuck Edwards. I tell you what, though, every time I see his name on the press releases when I get them, Senator Edwards announces, I, I, <laughs> I think John Edwards. I just can't help it. <laughs> I don't know why. I was like, Senator Edwards, what's he do? What's he up to now? Why is he made? Oh, Chuck Edwards. Yes. Okay. So Senator, <laughs> State Senator Chuck Edwards, Republican from Henderson, along with Buncombe County Commissioner uh, Joe Belcher, also a Republican, but also a member of the TDA board, which is the uh, what the Tourism Development Authority, the Buncombe County Travel and Tourism and Asheville Buncombe Hotel Association. Uh, they created... Uh, or want to create, they're going to get state legislation to create this job recovery fund uh, using $5 million in grants for tourism-related businesses. Um, they made this announcement to try to start a uh, sort of jumpstart the uh, the tourism industry here in Buncombe County. Uh, and actually, later this week, I'm going to talk with Jason Sanford from ashvegas.com. If you have a chance, go check out his website. He's got a very lengthy story. It's called, like, The Long Road Back. I'm going to talk to him about it uh, because it's uh, this – And well, yesterday's program, I mentioned this uh, concept or this idea to Dr. Greg Murphy, who's also the you know congressman from North Carolina's 3rd District. Uh, this idea – or this uh, sort of, we, we've been spoiled by this ubiquitous uh, dine out culture. And there are so many restaurants and breweries and, uh, you know, tourism related places like that, you know, service industry. Uh, does that survive? How can it survive if everybody's got to socially distant, uh, uh, distance themselves from everybody? Like, how do you, how do you build a floor plan in a bar or a restaurant that, that you know make sure that everybody is six feet away from each other you need a certain number of tables in a space and those tables need to turn in a certain amount of time in order for the restaurant to be profitable and even then the profit margin is so very slim that's why restaurants go out of business so often you know so for tourism economies like ours um we're gonna this is like there are a lot of people in Asheville that have been clamoring for a throttling back of the tourism industry? Well, this is what it's going to look like. Y'all are going to get a, a really clear idea of what the Asheville and Buncombe economy is uh, going to look like without the tourism sector firing on all cylinders as it has been. You're gonna, We're all going to get to experience it. And we'll see which method you preferred, you know? Now, there is something to be said, and even the Chamber recognizes this, that the over-reliance on tourism uh, for any particular economy is, that's not a, uh, it's not a, not a good idea because something like this happens, you know, downturn in the economy, a recession or something, and, th you know, the tourism dollars go away pretty quickly. So uh, that's why you want to have these kinds of funds as backstops, the rainy day fund and such. But if your political philosophy, when it comes to economics, also is see a penny, spend a penny in order to buy votes, well, that becomes more difficult uh, to you know create the rainy day fund and not raid it for any political pet project. Anyway, so the legislation that Chuck Edwards is uh, going to propose here at the General Assembly in the State Senate is called the Buncombe County Tourism Jobs Recovery Act. The Buncombe County TDA will establish a recovery fund providing $5 million in emergency grant funding available for Buncombe County tourism-related small businesses and nonprofit organizations that are affected by the coronavirus pandemic. 
eligible applicants can receive up to $50,000 directed toward the restart of their business once the recovery begins and it is safe to operate or resume full operations, in turn providing jobs and allowing workers to return to the workforce. So a couple of, I don't want to say caveats, but criteria, right? It's a couple of criteria there that you've got to clear. So number one, um, tourism-related, small business or nonprofit, um, have to have been affected by the coronavirus. Like, this is one of the things, like, I can't, people ask me, oh, are you going to apply for any of the, like, the PPP or any of these loans and stuff? I can't. I got laid off and started this whole operation before COVID-19, so I cannot blame the virus if I fail. <laughs> Right. Even though the advertising uh, uh, markets have you know, gotten very, very dry, because usually that's the first thing that goes in any kind of down- economic downturn is the advertising. You could have great ratings, um, but if nobody's willing to spend the money on the advertising. Yeah. So eligible applicants can receive up to 50 grand. So that's a cap on how much you could get. Um, and that could be used to restart the business once the recovery begins. So I don't know what that means. Is that based on the governor's phase plan, his, you know, phase three plan, the TTT, the three T's and the phase three? Or is it uh, based on a federal declaration of some kind? I'm not really sure. Um, And also, uh, it would have to be safe to operate or resume full operations. So you can't just like open it up, take the money, and then you're out of business. Uh, Take the money and run kind of deal. Tourist, uh, the tourist industry and the Asheville Buncombe Hoteliers, uh, they were the ones who put this thing together. And Chuck Edwards says that this is uh, one of the most generous and selfless acts I have witnessed for them to dedicate funding to help other businesses. Funding that would otherwise go to promote their own uh, businesses shows that their sincerity and commitment is to our community. Uh, yeah, so I, hoteliers get a bad rap, but they do a lot of things like this that I think a lot of the critics are not aware of them doing. Because this is hotel money that they're going to now use to help reopen businesses that are not hotels. Under the Act, $5 million is going to get used from unspent funds that are currently remaining in the TPDF. You know what that is? You remember what that is? The TPDF, this is the Tourism Product Development Fund. Uh, this was off of the hotel motel taxes, the occupancy taxes, and uh, there was, there's been this fight over what to do with the money because by statute, you're supposed to use it for uh, advertising for promotion of the area and outside of market. And you use it for, uh, they've been doing these grants, you know, like the zip line project or, you know, whatever these you know, tourism related projects. And this is what, this is the fund that the city of Asheville has been trying to get their grubby mitts on because they want to use that money to fund core infrastructure that they have failed to, uh, to fund adequately for decades, right? Now, they would prefer to use somebody else's money uh, to pay for the things that they're supposed to be paying for. So this way they can take the money uh, that should be paying for the core services and they could use it to buy votes with different things uh, that, you know, nice shiny objects and such that uh, uh, get a lot of their voters excited during the primary. So uh, grants would be awarded to the Buncombe County tourism-related small businesses that are affected by the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, applicants would be eligible for the 50 grand businesses that qualify are those that provide a direct experience for visitors, including restaurants, retail, studios, and galleries, attractions, tours, and activities, breweries, wineries, cideries. I've never seen the word, but it makes sense. 
place where they make cider, cideries, <laughs> distilleries, entertainment and event venues, as well as numerous other categories. Lodging properties, not eligible. To be eligible, a business has to meet the same requirements as those listed on the website, exploreashville.com. Preference will be given to small businesses that are locally and independently owned. So that's cool. $5 million for that fund. That's really good news, I think. Um, hopefully they'll get that done. And I'm totally fine with because the hotel industry is like, hey, let's take this money and do it for this other thing. They go to Raleigh. They get it. Uh, uh, they get the legislation changed so they can uh, do this. That's the way you do it. Right. That's the way you 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 build a coalition to get something done at the state level when you are trying to solve a problem, unlike how the local uh, city council and county commission leadership has been doing it, which is to, uh, you know, yell and scream and and target these hoteliers and the industry and uh, basically make them the scapegoat for all of the problems. Uh, And it's not their fault. You know, it's not the hotel industry's fault that the sidewalks haven't been improved for the last 70 years you know that's that's not the fault of uh the the stay in express up the street there that they're not the ones i I call this the fat tourist uh syndrome where these uh elected leaders are blaming the hotels for the crumbling sidewalks as if like these fat tourists are coming in and jumping up and down on sidewalks and breaking all of the sidewalks and it's totally not the city of Asheville's fault that the sidewalks keep breaking and the lifespan of a sidewalk is 80 years. That You've had 80 years to replace these sidewalks. But they need to be replaced now and it's because of the hotels? Give me a break. Anyway, another piece of good news. Over the next few weeks, Mission Health is going to be taking down the emergency triage tents outside of the regional hospitals. Uh, they put these things up earlier this month in April. Um And now they've sent out a press release where Senior Vice President for the North Carolina Division of HCA Healthcare, Kathy Guyette, said, quote, Fortunately, we have not yet seen widespread transmission of COVID-19 at this point in our community or a surge in our hospitals. I was talking actually to a family member who is a hospital uh, nurse in North Carolina, and uh, they've been, uh, she hasn't been called into work for like, I think weeks now that she's not in this local area, but it, it like this is uh, this is part of the problem when you don't see the expected surge and you've cut all of the quote elective surgeries. You've got you've got uh, hospital staff, medical healthcare professionals that now are not working, and the hospitals now are losing money. We're going to get into this because I've got audio from the speaker of the house, the state house, uh, Tim Moore, who did an event and he talks about the amount of money that hospitals are losing. So Mission's going to tear down the tents, but they say, don't worry, they can pop them back up. Uh, They can reconstruct them within a couple of hours if they see some sort of a surge in patients and they need space. Um, Dr. William Hathaway, Mission Health's chief medical officer, cautioned that the tent removals should not be construed as recommendations for people to start ignoring social distancing. Okay, so just because the tents are coming down doesn't mean that uh, everybody could just start, you know, uh, just running around, hugging each other and, you know, licking each other's hands and stuff like that's that's still not recommended. Okay, Um, I'll tell you, though, I did notice a lot of people I went food shopping yesterday. First time I think I've been out of the apartment for three weeks now. Two, no, I'm kidding. But uh, I mean, Christy and I, we do try to, like, we went for a walk the other day, too. But And sometimes you get these looks from people like, how dare you be walking? I'm allowed to walk, man. 
this is still America. I can walk. Okay, so uh, I'll go to the grocery store and uh, see a lot. First off, a lot more people wearing masks now. Like now there were more people with masks than without. Compared to, I think, three weeks prior was the last time I went shopping. Christy went food shopping the last time. So three weeks ago is when I went food shopping. And uh, there were, I think at that point, there were more people without masks than with. And uh, so now I'm walking around and now it's like you're looking at the people who stand out because they're not wearing masks. It's so interesting, like how that that social dynamic works, you know, like when I was not wearing a mask walking around and I would see somebody wearing a mask, I'd say, oh, that person stands out. They're wearing a mask. But now everybody's wearing a mask and now the people who aren't, they stand out. Anyway, so I'm walking around and um, I'm okay with the people, by the way, not wearing the masks. I'm totally fine with that. If you don't want to wear the mask at the grocery store, I mean, you know, whatever, that's... It's your call. I'm not going to, I'm a libertarian. I'm not going to tell you how to live your life. You know, uh, I'm going to wear a mask though. Now I will say this though, for the love of me, uh, please adhere to the one way uh, directions that they've set up in the aisles, right? Because like mask, no mask. I don't care. That doesn't really impact me. I'll just stay away from you. But if you're walking the wrong way down this aisle and clogging it all up, no, that, that does impact me. Okay. And now like that's, uh, that's an egregious offense. All right. So uh, please, people, like adhere to the one way. And I know it's difficult because the signs are like temporary looking and you got to look for them. And I walked up the wrong aisle when I first walked in. I didn't even pay any attention. And I just walked up the first aisle. And then I realized, oh, no, I'm in the wrong aisle. So I get that. But if you're constantly going through the wrong way just to like, ah, screw you, I don't care about your rules. But I don't know. I, I don't know what I'm going to say. I, I just. Well, you're, you're a bad person. Okay. Um, I did, I will say one of the downsides of the cloth masks here is that as I'm walking around, uh, you know, and I've got this mask over my face and now it's like fogging up my glasses. Uh, we need to come up with an, uh, with a solution here for, uh, the masks for, uh, for us folks who are, uh, uh, you know, challenged with the glasses because you put those things on, it happens in the wintertime too. When you wrap a scarf around your uh, mouth, you get the, you know, the heat, the, the moisture and stuff. It fogs up your glasses. So now it's like, it's retaining all this heat and everything. And now it's like, I'm starting to sweat as I'm walking around. And because, you know, yesterday was one of those days where it's like, oh, it's breezy. And in the, when the clouds roll in, it's nice and cool. So you got the jacket on and then like the clouds go away and now it's like scorching hot. And I'm like cooking in my, you know, windbreaker, plastic windbreaker thing. And now I'm sweating. And now people are like, oh my gosh, this guy is walking around and he's like sweating in the grocery store. He's in the frozen section and he's sweating. He's got the virus. He's got the virus. And so they're like pointing at me saying virus, virus. Okay. That part didn't happen, but I felt like it was, it was touch and go for a minute there around the eggs. It, it just felt like that to me. I may have been blowing it out of proportion though. Also, Novant and Wake Forest Baptist, they plan to resume elective surgeries, some in-person appointments in May. Um, May 4th, Novant uh, says they're going to resume certain non-essential elective surgeries and procedures, as well as select in-person wellness appointments. Uh, that includes some pediatric well checks, chronic disease and acute issue visits. Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center plans to resume similar services in early May. Um they all have, you know, halted those, quote, non-essential surgeries, um, which was one of the, that's another issue is you, you've halted all of these, quote, procedures, the or these, not quote, but you know, non-essential or elective procedures. And some of them are, you know, cancer screenings. Well, 
you put that off for six months or a year, and now all of a sudden you go in and, oh, the cancer came back and wish you had gotten in here a year earlier, but you didn't. And now you got people who are very afraid to go to the hospital because they're afraid if they go to the hospital, they're going to catch it. Patients need to take care of their health and in line with national trends. Novant Health has seen a worrisome decline in patients seeking care for emergent conditions, in, uh, including heart attack and stroke, said Novant uh, Health System. In other words, the, well, the uh, president and chief executive, Carl Amato, said putting off care indefinitely is simply not good for our patients, and in some cases, it's deadly. Yeah, so you're seeing people not coming into the hospitals uh, for emergency care. They call it emergent care. But if, And if people think that they're you know suffering the symptoms of a heart attack and they don't go to the hospital and then they die at home, right? Like, is that a COVID-related death? Right, because that person didn't go because of all of the stuff about COVID. This is the other side of the equation. This is another part of the argument, another data point that needs to be examined when, uh, when discussing, uh, you know, the, the, the effects of COVID, the risks involved in reopening or keeping closed, keeping the economy shut down and keeping hospitals in this perpetual state of, uh, of crisis. Like this is one of the risks. This is one of the trade-offs. And, uh, there are a lot of folks that are like just, I think, in denial about that. Uh, let's see here. Oh, the General Assembly. Let me get to the General Assembly. It's reopening. By the way, uh, if you need some help with your business website, right? With when when all this happened, everything just got shut down. It almost seemed like overnight. And you, people probably realized that well, my website was working fine before, but now like everybody's coming to my website and. Now you're probably realizing there are some limitations to it or some things that weren't a priority before COVID-19 for your website. Now they are. Well, if you are trying to fix your website, trying to make it better, more user friendly, or maybe you're trying to set it all up, uh, it could be overwhelming. I know that personally. So let Schaefer Smith at Schaefer Smith Design help you out. He does logos, graphics, photography. Uh, can set you up with the online store, search engine optimization, website maintenance, and security. For professional services, corporate, small business, and entrepreneurs, he'll, he does it all. Schaefer Smith. He's a listener to the show. He has been for years. Um, so uh, give your business to somebody who's part of our community. Make your site look professional and user-friendly for your customers so they're going to be able to navigate your site well and for you. So you'll be able to keep your site updated if you want to add something to it or take something down. He's going to show you how to do that as well. He'll empower you to do that. SchaeferSmith.com. That's his website. SchaeferSmith.com. So Colin Campbell at the News and Observer headline, Burger Cooper back differing approaches to random coronavirus tests. So they back different approaches. Okay. Colin Campbell is the Capitol Press reporter for the News and Observer, <clears throat> one of them, and his story begins, two branches of state government have embarked on separate studies to determine how common coronavirus is across the state's population, each partnering with different universities. Okay, this is automatically, I have this sense that this is a negative kind of a story, and maybe that's my personal bias, I I'm totally self-aware. Anytime I read uh, anything in the News and Observer, uh, particularly by Mr. Campbell, I'm automatically looking for the Republicans pounce, the Republicans seize, you know, something, you know, 
something along those lines. I'm, I'm just on guard for it. Um, that's how little confidence and trust I have in him and his operation. So I acknowledge this. But here's the thing. I have no problem with the two different branches of the state government partnering with two different university systems in the state in order to get testing done. I'm fine with that. They're doing different approaches. Cool. I I am an all of the above kind of a guy. I want all of it. Do as much as possible. His story continues. The existence of two initiatives stems in part from a disagreement between Governor Roy Cooper and Senate Leader Phil Berger, who's been advocating for the random sample testing for a month. So the disagreement, this is interesting, because the disagreement isn't so much as a disagreement anymore about whether to do it, because Cooper's doing it now, right? Cooper and the DHHS, they're now partnering up. They're doing this testing. They just didn't want to do it when Berger suggested they do it. This is... And again, House Speaker Tim Moore, he references something about this, the politics that are involved, and he's trying to, this is a difficult crisis because everyone is trying to figure out what the political move is that's going to get them the most juice, right? Which squeeze do they need to do to get the most juice? They don't want to make a bad decision. And when you looked at the original modeling and you saw tens of thousands of North Carolinians dead, yeah, any politician's going to look at that and say, oh, my God, let's do something to stop that. I don't want that body count on me. Because you know full well that the other party is going to use the body count, a high death toll, to attack any incumbent. And if you doubt me on that, look at President Trump. <laughs> Everybody was say, oh, this is Trump's disaster, Trump's Chernobyl, Trump's 9-11. And then even when the numbers, uh, the modeling projections came down, they still said, uh, oh, look at that. He's satisfied with only 200,000 deaths. I mean, my goodness, that's four Vietnam wars. Remember all of that? Okay. So, and and by the way, don't think that Republican strategists and campaigns wouldn't try to put that on Cooper either. I'm trying to give the elected leaders at all levels, I'm trying to give them space because we're all flying blind, or as Dr. Uh, Greg Murphy, the congressman, said in yesterday's program, you know, we're building the plane while we're flying it. It's a pretty good analogy. So I'm trying to give them space uh, to make these decisions. It doesn't mean I'm going to agree with all of them. But if you can if you can explain your decision process to me and it's reasonable, okay, I may disagree with it. But okay, I mean, you're in charge. Let's see what happens. But here's the thing. You got to be willing to adapt. You got to be willing to say, okay, we now have new data. So let's let's change this approach because the new data is indicating this isn't the correct approach or we'll have better benefit this other direction. So Berger argues that current COVID-19 testing practices exclude people who have minor or no symptoms. That is true. Um, Making it impossible to get a complete picture of how many people have the virus. That is true. Cooper's Department of Health and Human Services initially worried that testing supplies were inadequate for such a study, but on April 17th, it announced its own effort to conduct random testing with a different methodology. And I understood this argument at the time that Cooper was making. They were saying, if you're going to do this kind of a uh, test, the COVID test, which is the one you maybe you've seen, they take the, the like a 17 foot long Q-tip and like jam it into your brain, something like that. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it goes in your nose. It looks like it goes forever though, but it goes all through the nasal passage and it's really invasive. It's uncomfortable. And um, it takes somebody, you know, to do that and get right up close to you, which means they need to be decked out in the gear, you know, the, the equipment, the PPE. 
and there weren't enough supplies or they were afraid they were going to run out of all of these supplies, so they weren't able to do the testing. So even if you had the test kits, you couldn't do it, which is why Berger partnered up with Wake Forest Baptist and said, hey, why don't we just mail these little you know, pinprick tests? People can take their own blood and send it back to us. And then the media that was on the press conference call, they were like, well, but then how do you know that these samples aren't going to get corrupted? Like, yeah, well, that's a limitation. Again, practicing battlefield medicine. This is the clinical trial, people. Like, we do not have the time or luxury of conducting controlled experiments, uh, you know, that meet every single benchmark of rigor throughout the scientific community. We don't have that luxury right now. I don't think so. That's why I say just do as much of this stuff as possible where we can, as best we can, or as best they can. Because truth be told, like, I really have nothing to do with it. (laughs) Um. I'm just cheering on people who are doing it. I want them to succeed. I'm not rooting for the virus here. I'm rooting for humans. Go humans. I'm on team human. Asked why DHHS did not partner with Wake Forest on its study, uh, the spokesperson for DHHS said that Phil Berger never asked them to join. Um, But she did say North Carolina needs more testing of all types. Berger spokesman Pat Ryan questioned why North Carolina did not initiate random sampling earlier, like when Stanford University was launching similar efforts in California, uh, noting, we refuse to accept that California is somehow more capable than North Carolina um, in doing this stuff. He says, if the Cooper administration had accepted our request to prioritize that type of testing, we would likely have more actionable data available to us now. And that data would then better inform our modeling as we're making these decisions. And that is true as well. Meanwhile, State Treasurer Dale Falwell uh, recently recovered from COVID-19 himself. Uh, He announced that uh, they have secured more than 20,000 COVID-19 tests from Mako Medical. And the FDA approved tests are going to be used to test more than 16,000 corrections officers and other employees at the state's 56 correctional institutions over the next few weeks. The largest concentrations of COVID-19 cases in the state have occurred in the state's prisons. Uh, Also, researchers at the Army's premier infectious diseases lab are working on a more sensitive test that could detect the coronavirus in people that have no symptoms whatsoever. A critical step in getting the nation back to a, quote, new sense of normal, said the lab's chief. Uh, but not normal, obviously, but a new sense of normal. The experimental work underway at the United States Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases at Fort Detrick in Maryland. Uh, They were uh, trying to, the the big problem here is, I'm just going to skip ahead here, the false negatives. Um, And that risks continuing the spread of the virus. You do these tests and a lot of the tests, um, and particularly apparently some of them, that uh, a lot of them rather that came out of China, um, a lot of these tests, uh, I think one of the stats I saw was like 5% accurate. One of these tests that the Chinese have been pushing out there is only 5% accurate, which is actually more accurate than any other data that the Chinese have given us on COVID-19. That's, But the problem is if you get a lot of false negatives, then you think, oh, I don't have it. The people that got tested, oh, I, I don't have it. I'm fine. Meanwhile, they do have it and they're running around spreading it licking, you know, hands and stuff. If an individual has the coronavirus, that individual should have antibodies and likely be protected in the future. However, if the person does get tested and is discovered to have the antibodies, it's not an all clear 
because they could have developed a medical condition in the meantime that would make them less able to fight off the coronavirus if they get exposed again. This is part of the issue. That's why you get the flu shot every year. They're different strains, constantly mutating. Isn't that going to be fun, right? Also, let's see, USC and the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health released uh, preliminary results from a collaborative scientific study that suggests infections from the new coronavirus are far more widespread and the fatality rate is much lower. The results are from the first round of an ongoing study. They hope... uh, 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 They'll be conducting rather antibody testing over time on a series of representative samples of adults to determine the scope and spread of the pandemic across uh, the country. The study's results have not been peer reviewed yet. The researchers plan to test new groups of participants every few weeks uh, to gauge the pandemic's trajectory in that region. And also they figured out that uh, the first U.S. coronavirus death may have actually occurred On February 6th in Santa Clara County, a person who died at home in Santa Clara was infected with the coronavirus at the time of her death. That means that uh, where everybody thought that the first death was um, sometime in like uh, March. No, actually, it was early February, which means that this person probably contracted the virus at some point uh, in January. Dr. Sarah Cody, Santa Clara County's public health officer, said there uh, had to be chains of transmission that go back much, much earlier from what uh, from what we understand. Neither of the cases had a history of travel, so they assumed that they acquired it locally, which means that this virus was running rampant through uh, uh, through Santa Clara uh, in the Bay Area, right, California, for a month before anybody knew it. As of Tuesday, Santa Clara had reported about 2,000 confirmed cases and uh, almost 90 deaths. The first case in the U.S. was identified in January 21st in a man in Seattle who had recently returned from China. The earliest cases in the Bay Area were also in recent travelers. At the time, only people with similar travel histories got tested uh, or people with whom they came into contact. Now, if you don't want to come into contact with people when you're trying to buy or sell a home, Rowena Patton can help you. She does all of the video consulting. She does video walkthroughs. She's actually been doing this for houses since 2007 on every listing. So you get this, uh, uh, you get a walking tour video on every house. Uh, so it's just like the real thing. So the buyers, if they want to come into your house, they can see everything as if they're walking through the house. Also, there are investors that uh, are interested in buying homes right now. So if you need to get the house sold quickly and you need to move out, uh, maybe you sell it to an investor ready to tour the home virtually and make a cash offer, potentially saving you the hassle and stress of buyers walking through the house. Okay, Start out with a video consult with Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team. Her phone number, 333-4483. That's 333-4483. Call the only agent that I would call Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team, mountainhomehunt.com, and start packing. So the Speaker of the North Carolina House was the featured guest speaker at the monthly Shaftesbury Society luncheon event that the John Locke Foundation does. Uh, Obviously, it was done uh, via video conference. And uh, he says that they are going to be looking at easing regulations through regulatory reform, either temporarily or permanently. Like something as simple, for example, is your driver's license. Uh, If your driver's license is set to expire during this period of time, you don't need to be you know, crowded in the DMV office with 100 of your closest friends shoulder to shoulder 
uh, waiting to uh, renew your license. You know, extending that out for some period of time, whether it's 90 days, six months, whatever it is. Uh, things like permits, you, if you've gotten a permit to, to do something, to, to be able to get those extended. So you'll see a whole host of reg reform that's designed to kick in and allow that to happen right now. On the unemployment insurance side, uh, there have been some real challenges over at the Department of the Division of Employment Security and folks getting access to their unemployment. Their unemployment. I don't know why this keeps getting cut off like that. All right, so they are unemployment. Uh, it means laid-off employees should be able to get their UI benefits within a week instead of six weeks. Uh, also, the first quarter of uh, unemployment taxes that are assessed against businesses, those are going to get waived. Um, they're going to look to put money into COVID testing, uh, looking to expand coverage for telehealth, telemedicine. They want to invest in the state's medical schools and schools of public health, and they want to try to find funding for accurate modeling and testing to see how many people have it or have had it. The reality is, is that not everybody who is contracting COVID-19 is being tested. Uh, if you were to call your doctor right now and say, hey, I have 102 degree fever, I'm I'm having all these other symptoms, but I can breathe okay. It's a little chance, but I can breathe okay. You're going to more than likely be told, stay home, self-quarantine, take this medicine, do these things, and it should pass. Mm -hmm. Well, you don't show up anywhere on any of the numbers as a COVID-19 positive, even if you know the healthcare providers pro think you probably are and that you probably had it. Uh, so that's, that's another thing that, so when we talk about testing, the testing should be robust. Because we need accurate, as accurate numbers as possible uh, when it comes to this. He also says there's going to be more opportunities to reevaluate all sorts of other government functions. One example we, we, we're working on, you'll notice the provision talks about remote notaries. If you think about getting a document notarized, which, which could be very critical for so many things, um, the thought of having to be in the same room with someone and actually physically observe them is... Uh, is a somewhat outdated uh, notion that because if you look at so much e-commerce that happens, documents that you can sign electronically that have the force and effect of law in terms of a contract, we need to, we need to uh, use this opportunity to update our notary statutes, one level, of course, for emergencies right now, but then also look at ways we can improve it overall. That's just one example. But again, you see examples there of, of some of the operations. Now, there's been a lot of talk about elections. Uh, and I want to make it very clear that this General Assembly will not approve some sort of mass voting by mail or any other scheme like that that's going to be rife with fraud. I know that the uh, the feds talked about, I think the Pelosi was uh, pushing this like ballot harvesting. And last time I checked, I think we had a big mess with a congressional race over what? Ballot harvesting. Uh, you know, and, and again, but that's the same crowd that opposed voter ID. So you know, I don't think I need to say anything else on that. But bottom line is uh, we're going to stand firm that uh, we for voter integrity, making sure folks can vote, uh, that the elections go on. And, of course, you can vote by mail right now. You can request an absentee ballot and vote by, by mail right now under current law. True. So if you can't or you don't want to get out, there's already a statute in place that allows you to do that. Uh, there, of course, there's the early voting. There's all those things. There'll be plenty of opportunities to vote under our current law. And if we need to tweak some things to, you know, to contemplate this pandemic and social distancing, we can certainly do that. Uh, but these notions of just like a, a thing where the BOE just does a mass mailing of ballots out to everybody and just send it back or allow harvesting, that, is, that would just be irresponsible and, 
and, and something that as long as, uh, as I'm sitting in this chair as the speaker uh, simply is not going to happen. He also notes the difference between now and a decade ago before the GOP took over, um, how the state owed the federal government billions of dollars for unemployment payments that were made during the Great Recession. When we went into this, we had in our state unemployment insurance fund, uh, we had about a $2.9 uh, billion dollar, um, uh, fund there. Uh, actually, excuse me, $3.9. Joseph corrected me. He's right. It was a $3.9, <laughs> nearly $4 billion that was sitting there because we had built the trust fund up. Uh, when, and I think it's important to note that before conservatives uh, took over the legislature, we actually had a $2.8 billion debt to the federal government. So through all these years of conservative reforms of unemployment insurance, which by the way, many of us are getting attacked for now, we managed to take that 2.8 hole, that deficit and turn it into a $4.9 billion surplus. Can you imagine the mess that we would be in as a state right now if we did not have that? Had we not made those tough choices to make sure that we had a surplus in that fund and that it was self-sustaining? So uh, we're very we're very fortunate that we that we have that and uh, we have we've planned well for that. Also, of course, our uh, rainy day fund savings reserve we have uh, between the 2.2 billion unappropriated balance and 1.2 billion in the savings reserve. We have you know, roughly 3.4 billion in money there to deal with contingencies. Right. It's good to be prepared. If you are uh, worried that you're not prepared. Uh, if you need some advice on how to do that, uh, send a text over to my friend Tim. He runs Old Grouch's Military Surplus. He is the Old Grouch, not the original Old Grouch. That was his dad, Buddy. But um, Tim is now the Old Grouch at Old Grouch's Military Surplus, oldgrouch.com. Send him a text at 565-2497. Uh, you can get some advice, uh, need some direction on what you need to be prepared for various emergencies. He can help you with that. He can help get you stuff. Um, if he doesn't have it at oldgrouch.com he knows where to get it uh also ems and law enforcement professionals if you're looking for uniforms uh send him a text he can help you with those as well 565-2497 565-2497 old grouches military surplus so there's about three and a half billion dollars from the federal government that the state has to appropriate before December 31st, says House Speaker Tim Moore, and it has to go to COVID-related expenses or costs that are incurred by the state. But why not other expenses, he was asked. There are two, two schools of thought on that. One is if you look at a state like New York, a state like New York definitely wants that authority to do that because they had fiscally mismanaged their state all these years and had created a structural deficit that they couldn't, that in which they couldn't govern. And so then COVID-19 comes along and it's like, well, this is an excuse to go do all these other things. Uh, North Carolina though was, was fortunate that we had budgeted in a very conservative manner. We had budgeted wisely and, and the way we had budgeted, we actually were, were okay. We didn't have a, a deficit. We were, we were actually having years of surpluses in terms of, in terms of backfilling those uh, doing that, I certainly think it is proper to have an amount of money recognizing where those shortfalls are going to come. But here, the reality is, is that a lot of those costs are hitting right now. I mean, they're hitting right this minute. And as I've talked to members of our, of our congressional delegation, you know, they remind me uh, this money was appropriated by Congress for immediate relief right now to folks who are, who are suffering at this moment, whether it's small business, whether it's individuals, you name it. And to make sure that we're using these funds to, to respond to these needs. I mean, our, our health and human services demands 
are going to go up. We're going to have to spend more on Medicaid because more people qualify under our current law with this. And you've got people with 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 health care costs. Um, the other issue is you know, with, with the hospitals, for example, not being able to to perform the elective procedures. It's estimated that our hospitals across the state are losing anywhere from 800 million to a billion dollars a month aggregate for the hospitals. So you have these costs. And for, for those of us that live in rural communities, this is especially frightening because rural hospitals have been on the bubble for years. And this is the thing that could force these rural hospitals to close. So you'll see, for example, a lot of money in here uh, to, to, to uh, make sure we stabilize those rural hospitals. $800 million to a billion dollars a month hospitals are losing. Small businesses applied for and got the federal PPP loans, but then he says employees don't want the jobs because the $600 a weekly payout from the federal government creates a negative incentive to go back to work. Listen to this. Not happening only in other states. It's happening in North Carolina, and I've talked directly as recently as last night to a business owner who is dealing with this very issue at a restaurant. I mean, it is a real, it is a real issue, and it is something that we, that the Fed, I mean, the Feds did the six hundred. They need to find a way to, you know, to to adjust that to accommodate it, and and we'll probably have to revisit some of that uh, a few weeks from now, as as hopefully things are getting better. Because I tell you, we've got to get the state reopened. I mean, we need to do it in a in a thoughtful and a safe manner. But we cannot just stay hunkered down in our homes uh, indefinitely. That is not the solution to anything. He says that they're expecting a revenue hit of 10 to 15 percent, which would be about two and a half to three billion dollars, which means that we're going to have some very tough decisions to make for the budget. He said they don't even uh, have the total revenues in at the time they're going to be doing the budget because they pushed the filing, the tax filing deadline back into July. So they're not even going to have all of the revenue. They don't even know what it's going to be. So, yeah, there's going to be a lot of projects that are going to get cut They're uh, They're going to. You know, they're going to have to make these tough calls because they're not going to defund prisons and schools and the healthcare system. Now, regarding the governor's executive orders, the stay at home stuff, he says he would prefer to see counties get more control. I've spoken directly to the governor and expressed to him what I see is a way to look at it. And I think I've reflected in what I've told him, the consensus of most members of the House, by the way, that I've spoken to. And one of those has to do with the local counties. I do believe that the that the approach on these should be nuanced in the sense that we allow counties to have much more flexibility that if that if they don't believe that they need to be under these restrictions that they ought to be able to to opt out and you could put you know you could put in some parameters you could put in other conditions right I mean uh, but but assuming that letting those counties do that I certainly think that's appropriate I mean they're the closest to the people in those areas and I don't think you're going to have County commissions just disregarding the health of their of their residents. Uh, they're going to make those decisions based on what they see as wise. Because I, I said this early on uh, in the presentation, you know what may be right for for Charlotte and Raleigh and Durham and other areas is not necessarily the same thing that you need in Swan Quarter or you need in Tryon or you need up in uh, Robbinsville. I mean, you know, you've got some areas where there's low population, people are spread out, and I think that we ought to be uh, we we ought to approach things in a much more deliberate manner. But but look, our neighboring states, our neighboring states are starting to reopen. I think Georgia's reopening today, South Carolina in a few days. So, I mean, North Carolina does seem to be uh, an anomaly of the, of the, of the Southern states, North Carolina, I guess 
North Carolina, Virginia, and Kentucky are kind of the anomalies um, and, and where they've been, been much more uh, restrictive on trying to get the economy opened up. But I do hope that, uh, that, we, that we can get going. And, I, and I, look, I've tried to be very careful. I mean, this is an election year. This thing's got political overtones all over it. And I have just been extremely careful you know, not to play politics with this stuff. It is too important of an issue. And that's why I've tried to have very candid conversations with not only with the governor, who, of course, is a Democrat, I'm a Republican, uh, but members of, of my own chamber who are Democrats. That, you know, this is a, if ever there was a time to just put down the partisanship and focus on what's best for North Carolina, if, if this isn't the time, then I don't know what is. I tend to agree. And um, today there is another one of the demonstrations to reopen and see occurring in Raleigh as the legislature comes back into session. So do you think people will just ignore the stay at home orders at some point? The speaker was asked. So I drive from my little t- my, my town in Kings Mountain. Uh, where I live, about three hours from there to, to here in, in Raleigh every week, sometimes a couple of times a week. And I, I've done my own informal study as I'm driving on the interstate, <laughs> uh, how long it takes and where I normally hit traffic jams, right? right? There are no traffic jams right now between here and the other side of Charlotte. I haven't hit one in weeks. Hmm. Uh, people aren't on the roads, but I have noticed in the last, last week and then uh, and, and as I came up here this weekend, uh, there, there, are, there do appear to be more and more cars on the road. So I think more and more people are coming out and venturing out now. And so, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see as more and more folks are just, you know, doing what they're going to do. Uh, do you see any kind of spike or increase in the cases? I mean, I think we can look and see what's happening in Georgia. Look for a few days and see if, uh, you know, if Armageddon happens there or something. I mean, just I mean, my suspicion is, is that people have, is that the folks who are going to comply with the stay at home order who are now going to say, okay, it is now safe for me to go do these things that I want to do are going to exercise the normal prudence and care that they would to avoid making themselves sick or other individuals sick. And my prediction is, and my hope is, is that you're not going to see some crazy spike or anything after that. Mm, I don't know if I share his faith in humanity, but we shall see. He also said he understands the frustration with the lack of data. But now the Department of Health and Human Services is reporting the nursing homes where there have been outbreaks. However, they are actually now going to identify those locations where this has happened, where there have been those outbreaks. But I think it's important to note that an outbreak means two or more cases, two, just two. So I think that they also need to provide the proper context uh, on, on those. And, and look, any loss of life is tragic. Any loss of life is tragic. But the data out there is tending to show that the folks who are, who are losing, their, losing their lives in North Carolina are those who are either uh, in their elder years or have some serious underlying health issues that, that have made, their, made their, uh, their, their respiratory system compromised. Uh, so I think is we def- yes we need to know more data we need to know the ages we need to know that because you have folks worrying is their six year old who's in good health in in, in risk of uh, of dying from this disease I mean any parent who loves their kids is going to take every precaution that they can and if the data is simply showing that no children have died from this and that it is all folks in their elder years which is what the data I believe is tending to show. Then, then we know where the focus needs to be. We know that that's where the, you know, we need to make sure we're deploying the resources and when, and frankly, the restrictions uh, in the right ways that make sense. But absolutely, I mean, why would we not? Why would we not share data with the citizens of this state? 
you know, anytime government withholds information, I don't care what it is. It, 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 it only it, it, it raises the question, why? Why not share it? Because guess what? Everybody, I and everybody that work with us, you know, work in the state of North Carolina, they're doing this. We work for the taxpayers of the state. And that's who we need to answer to. And when it comes to getting data out there, the more the better, because you know what? The taxpayers paid for this. They're entitled to get that data. All right. So that was the Speaker of the House speaking uh, with the John Locke Foundation Shaftesbury Society. Uh, they do a monthly luncheon. He was their featured speaker. Um, now, over on the Senate side with the uh, the starting up of the new legislative session today, uh, the Senate leader, Phil Berger, said he is not going to take up Governor Cooper's veto of the state budget. So that's done. Quote, when we come back into session, our focus will be on providing relief for North Carolina citizens suffering because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Our state's financial outlook is in a vastly different place than it was before this pandemic hit. Because of that, we will not be reconsidering the veto of the state budget this year. The legislature uh, returns to approve emergency spending and policies with plans to reconvene later in the spring. Uh, Senate budget writers sent a letter to Governor Cooper also asking him to instruct all of his branch's agencies to voluntarily find a 1% savings in their budgets. The General Assembly's chief staff economist told the Senate budget writers a few weeks ago that the state could see overall revenue fall as much as $2.5 billion. All right. Well, that's it for today. If you like the show and the content that we're doing here, please subscribe to the podcast. It's the uh, the biggest help you can provide. Give it a thumbs up in the reviews. I appreciate that as well for everybody who has done it. Thank you. Uh, and consider becoming a patron of the program. You'll get the coveted I'm a Giver sticker, plus access to exclusive content. We'll be doing a live stream this week, actually. Merchandise, events, all of it. Links are at thepetecalendarshow.com. Thanks so much for the support. Talk to you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone.